Climbing Gold is a production of Duct Tape and Beer, with support from the North Face. Never stop exploring. Dr. Squatch, get dirty, stay clean. Chorus, explore perfection. An element, restoring health through hydration. Salt Lake City, June 2021. We're here catching up with USA Climbing. It's attached to a very, very sleek shared workspace, business incubation, office space, startup. I don't even know what to call it. It's sleek though. The training center, it's like almost like an afterthought. You walk past all these beautiful conference rooms with people in collared shirts doing business stuff, presenting on who knows what's down a long hallway, like you're trying to find the bathroom or something, and then out of a fire exit, and then bang. It is like 100 degrees right now. June, six weeks to the Olympics. All of a sudden, you're in what might be a climbing renaissance. The tour earlier, but yeah. Oh, yeah, no, no, no. Walk us through. Yeah. yeah, front room, pretty straight. Well, actually, I'll tell you what, can we turn the music off for a second? Nathaniel, you want to walk us through this? Tell us what everything is. So, yeah, the speed wall in three sections. This is Nathaniel uh, Coleman, wall. Olympian, four time U.S. Um, bouldering champion. He's walking us through the 20, facility. 30, 40, and 50 degrees. Vans churn trying to keep it cool on the hottest day of the year so far. We have the weight station. It tells the USA Climbing Training Center because there's as much chalk on the ninth rung of the canvas rung as, as anywhere else. You, you don't really see that at a commercial gym. <laughs> Normally commercial gyms are really chalky at the bottom and then it peters out as you get higher. <laughs> this is like, oh yeah. <laughs> um, show, us the, uh, show us the humidity torture chamber. The coaching staff here, led by Josh Larson and Meg Coyne, they've set up this crazy little small insulated area to simulate an average August day in Tokyo. Mid-90s with humidity in the 90s. Kind of gross. So we got two grasshopper boards in here. Um, one of them's blank. We'll put some like fiberglass holes on it uh, once we start heat and humidity training. There's an entire room large enough to hold a competition. It's set with a handful of modern style boulder problems, the kind of things you can't find at a commercial gym. Coach Larson's been updating and adjusting to challenge the USA climbing athletes who've chosen to be here in Salt Lake City. This is a mixture of um, like walls that they used to use for the World Cup in Vail, as well as just homemade slab wall and vertical wall. Sean Bailey, fresh off a World Cup victory, is working on the spray wall. Natalia Grossman, who's also just won a World Cup, pops in and out after a morning session. USA Climbing's physical therapist and medical manager is working on Kai Leitner. Olympian Kyra Condi is beaming after setting a PR on the speed wall earlier right now, this morning. Are you like living here? I mean, like, how many are you like here all the time, pretty much? Y- yeah, this is probably like 90% of my training is in the TC. The training center, or TC, as everyone here lovingly calls it, is by no means a state of the art facility. I'm not throwing shade here. In fact, I'm doing the opposite, because a few years ago, none of this existed. And I'm not just talking about the training center. I'm talking about the coaches, the medical attention, the athletes gathered in a single spot, the camaraderie, and maybe even more importantly, the World Cup victories. In less than two years, USA Climbing has gone from complete Olympic long shot to sending four athletes to Tokyo. And during the pandemic, that rise only seemed to accelerate. This spring, youth competitors emerge back onto the world stage to a new reality where a good day didn't mean squeaking into the finals. It meant coming in first. 
Today, we look at the race for Olympic gold, not just in 2020, but beyond. And we dive into the emergence of USA climbing and ask an important question. What is this all about? Is it about the competitors, the progression and love of our sport, gold medals, or money? And the answer, it turns out, is all of it. I'm Alex Honnold. I'm Fitz Cahal. This is Climbing Gold. USOPC has only got one measure of success, that's medals. This is Meg Coyne, USA Climbing's team manager and assistant coach. Incidentally, Coach Coyne will be temporarily assuming the role of head coach for the Olympics after Coach Josh Larson had to leave Japan the first week of the Olympics because of the death of his father. Coach Coyne is talking about the U.S. Olympic and Paralympic Committee and remembering back to the beginning of 2019 before the Olympic qualifiers had begun. And coming into our relationship with them, and this is not smack talk, they have been so incredibly supportive. Our sport performance team is amazing. They have a whole like numbers and stats department. And so those guys, you know, spit out some statistics on us for our sport performance team to better like inform them on what we needed and you know how we should be funded and supported. And we had like a like a 0.01% chance of winning a medal at Tokyo, which is to say they didn't think it was going to happen, which was fair. That's a 1 in 10,000 chance for a medal. Not just a gold, but like for a medal. We had some other crazy low number of qualifying one athlete to the games. And the case right off the bat, like as we built this relationship with them was, your numbers don't matter here. Like we have some of the best athletes in the world, but your numbers won't show it. Not only are they not at World Cups enough to get a world rank, and you're building statistics off world ranks that they couldn't have had, but they haven't trained combined. Like, we have some of the best athletes in the world, but you don't have a speed time for them. How are you building combined stats without combined events? You know, like, and that's a hard thing to explain to people who rely on data exclusively as a career, right? Where we're like, you don't have the data. The data you have is incorrect. But they basically awarded us zero dollars of support in 2019. Alex, what do you think of that? Yeah, actually, I mean, I think that what Meg was saying about the the numbers not reflecting the reality of the talent in the U.S. is totally true. The thing is, I think anybody taking a broader look at climbing ability around the world in 2019 would have argued that there are, uh, you know, just as many elite climbers in the U.S. as there are in the rest of the world. It's just that they weren't all being molded to competition in the way that that would eventually yield World Cup victories. You know, but I think if you're looking at raw talent, it's like there's just as many great climbers in the U.S. as, as anywhere else. You know, the standard is still very high. The U.S. Olympic Committee, when they were running the numbers, what they were actually identifying is that there was a lack of resources. There was a lack of infrastructure. And for sure, there was a lack of connective tissue that could lead to regular competitive success on an international level. 
The infrastructure simply wasn't there. We're not federally funded. The other, the other federations, take Slovenia, Germany, Japan, have government funding. They have a ministry of sport or something of the sort, and we don't over here. So we are a nonprofit, and we get money from memberships and sponsorship dollars and donations and all those things, but not from the government. So we function a lot differently than other places in the world. I think that there's this great story that we heard that illustrates this point. In the first half of the last decade, their, their early teens, Alex Puccio and Alex Johnson, they were arguably the two strongest American women. Both had won World Cups. They went to compete in Europe. They were, you know, they were sponsored athletes. But despite their stature in climbing, they were scraping by as professionals. Here's Alex Johnson, who we will talk with more extensively later in the season. Pucci and I were sleeping on gym floors in Switzerland. Like we'd like reach out to some like gym owner on Instagram and be like, hey, like we can't afford a hotel room. We're doing the World Cup tomorrow. Can we like sleep on the gym floor? And he would be like, yeah, and come let us in. And like, that's how we were like doing World Cups. We've heard a bunch of different versions of that story again and again when we talk people who were competing in the era before the Olympics announcement. Americans just didn't generate the resources to be consistent competitors. Sponsors weren't interested. USA Climbing, as America's national governing body, wasn't in a place to help athletes. And so a lot of would-be competitors did the calculus. It was simpler and more lucrative just to keep climbing outside. And so they didn't compete. If your job is to compete, but you have to do all these other things, like get yourself there and think through schedules and whatever, you're not going to compete as well. Coach Coyne and USA Climbing knew that if they were serious about building a team of elite climbers, that was the first thing. There'd be no more sleeping on gym floors. They had to take away the friction of competing on the international stage. That meant flights, hotel, travel arrangements. So that was the philosophy, is basically like clearing their runways. And as soon as we started doing that, like the numbers sort of started rolling in and we looked better and better and better. And so it is the most satisfying thing in the world to have four athletes qualified. Why doesn't USA Climbing uh, receive governmental support? Yeah, it's just not the way the United States works, right? We're a, we're a capitalist economy, so you got to go out and get it. This is Mark Norman, CEO of USA Climbing. Probably the hardest thing to do right now is figure out what gets funded and what doesn't get funded, because there's a lot that doesn't get funded. We don't fund full national teams. We don't fund full national teams to all world. Hell, we don't fund some World Cups, embarrassing. We don't fund our youth kids to go represent us at Youth World Championships. Hey, here's your, your Team USA gear, and do you mind writing us a check for the flights? Like, those are the things we need to be doing as an organization, but we just don't have the means yet to do it. So yeah, all of our funds you know, come from our partners, which are amazing from donors, which I would say has been a smaller focus of the organization, significantly growing. We're starting a foundation to really raise funds to help support the organization. And then from the kids and the parents and membership fees and event dues and those types of things. So, What percent of the pie comes from uh, memberships, you know, the, the, the kids and parents competing in competitions? About 25 percent. Yeah, that's the probably the smallest bucket. Membership fees, then, if you're looking at like revenue buckets, membership fees, sponsorship fundraising is number two, and then event fees. Event fees sounds a little off you know, being number one, but it's also the number one expense. So it, it mostly washes itself out. Almost all the money we bring in in registration for an event goes right back out the door. This, you know, this World Cup, two weekends, I mean, it was a $450,000 event expense. 
and that alone and, and youth, youth national championships in Reno in a few weeks already. Yeah, easily a quarter million dollars of expenses or more. In 2020, USA Climbing had a budget of around $4 million. And that budget comes from three main buckets, like Mark said. Membership, all those kids competing in the climbing teams you see at the gyms, corporate sponsors, and events. Here's John Bergman, our incredible producer. John, so what's the strategy going on here? What's their strategy for growth? I think USA Climbing's business model, which is actively evolving, it is growing to really spotlight and celebrate the most elite, the high performance aspect of our sport, as they call it. People get psyched when they see people doing amazing things. If you see the the high performance athletes, you see the the Olympians and whatnot, winning World Cups and stuff like that, that's going to feed the fire and get more people stoked to join USA Climbing, to go to their local climbing gym and join the climbing team, because you want to be like those people those high-end performance athletes, right? I mean, it's the it's the old "Be Like Mike" campaign with Michael Jordan in the in the in the '80s or '90s, right? Like you see people doing amazing things, and you want to be a part of that. It's like we haven't reinvented the wheel at all. A lot of this is stuff that other sports have done and has proven successful in other sports, right? How do you grow a sport? Well, you have superstars. <laughs> like You have high-performance athletes, and people naturally see that, and they want to do the same thing. They want to be a part of that movement. Basically, they're looking for their Michael Jordan. So it's basically the snowball effect. The high-performance division builds fans. People get eyeballs on the sport. That helps build youth teams and paying membership base. And in turn, that member base feeds the high performance division so that more resources are being directed into elite talent, which basically will attract more talent. And with it, more fans. And more non-endemic advertisers. Gatorade. Think car companies. Toyota. Money draws talent. Visa. Talent draws fans. If, if I could fly. And in 2019. Into the sky. This process, it all started with some plane tickets. <laughs> I feel like that's not it. And hotel rooms. If I could be like Mike. And putting American competitors in Olympic qualifiers. And then he sips and then he sips the Gatorade and everybody and then, and then everybody sips the Gatorade. Isn't that the the commercial? It's hard not to think that that investment has already paid off. Yeah, everybody drinks the Gatorade. <laughs> After the break, we hear from the climbers about what this newfound support means to them. I've been a North Face athlete for almost 18 years, which has been incredible and I've always appreciated their commitment to exploration. Summit Series is the name of the Pinnacle North Face products that I use on every expedition, and I love that their tagline is athlete-tested and expedition-proven. I've personally tested these products all over the world, and they've always proven themselves. Future Fleece is the next-generation base layer that I wear almost every day of climbing outside, whether on the wall or at the crag. You can shop the full Summit Series collection at thenorthface.com. I first found Koros when I was looking for a GPS watch that could track my biggest outdoor adventures. I needed something with a massive battery life that was also robust enough to handle the climbing. As it turns out, Koros is the only GPS watch brand that has done some serious development for climbers, from multi-bitch GPS tracking to indoor programmed workouts. The watches have a mind-blowing battery life. The Vertex watch series lasts for more than 100 hours in GPS activities, so I only need to charge it once every several weeks. <laughs> I only need to charge my watch so sporadically that I can never find the charger because I haven't used it in six weeks. (laughs) 
If you're interested in bringing new technology into your climbing, training, and tracking, you should consider their new Vertex 2S. Go to Coros.com and use the code CLIMBINGGOLD to secure a free watch carabiner with the purchase of your new Vertex 2S. So my name is Natalia Grossman and I'm 19 years old and I'm living out here in Salt Lake City so that I can train with the U.S. climbing team. Natalia, who moved here from Boulder, is in the midst of one of the best seasons an American competitor has ever had. She's won twice and had a total of seven podium finishes. Her fellow high-performance athlete, Sean Bailey, who moved here from Seattle, has won three World Cup stops this year. Over the last two years, competitive talent has begun to congregate in Salt Lake City, pulled here by the training center. But more importantly, the culture that has begun to surround this facility. I think it's amazing that we can all be here, and it's just so cool to have everyone here pushing each other, and it's always easy to find a climbing partner. You can just like text our like big group chat and be like, anyone want to go climbing? And there's always someone who's motivated. The average motivation in the U.S. training center is like double what, what I'm used to, what I get training alone. Here's Nathaniel Coleman again. We usually have anywhere from three to ten people in the training center at any given time. And there's kind of like maybe like most, most of the time the girls are on the same training plan um, and the boys are on the same training plan. So we're all getting motivation from our own groups. But at the same time, if us boys are just chilling on the pads, you know, being lazy, we look over and the girls are doing like weighted pull-ups with 40 pounds, you know, as fast as they can. And we're like, oh shit, we got to get our, we got to get moving here. Uh, <laughs> and um, yeah, so it's really good motivation in that aspect. This is what coaches Josh Larson and Meg Coyne set out to do, build a culture. That wasn't a plug-and-play process, though. There was no template for it. USA Climbing had never truly fielded a real team before. Like the way they act and the way they hang out and push each other in training is incredibly not selfish, which is really cool. Which is not to say they were selfish two years ago, but it wasn't the same sort of like camaraderie. What do you mean by that, Meg? Beginning of 2019, going into the Olympic qualification system season, all these athletes were effectively lone wolves. They knew each other. They've known each other since they were kids. They have sponsors, and so, and a lot of them get help from you know their family and whatever. Some of them have jobs, but they really had not had USA Climbing like buy them plane tickets to events or book them housing at events. And that was great, and they were excited about it. They were excited about support. However, support always comes with strings attached, and they did not like the strings attached. Signing an athlete agreement has always been part of World Cups, but it's always been, frankly, a joke with athletes because there's no repercussions. How could we <laughs> like, sanction you or punish you in any way when we don't actually give you anything? We give you a jersey, right? So this season it was like, all right, you signed an athlete agreement and there's a curfew. Well, what happens if they break curfew? Are we gonna kick them out of the house? You know, I mean, there were plenty of questions like that and people were frankly quite grumpy. It was a, like a pretty rough season. Like you have to come to a team meeting. Why do I have to come to a team meeting? Why do I have to do anything was kind of the, the sense that we got at the beginning of the year. 
Now, when we travel, it could not be more different than 2019. They want to come to Salt Lake to train together before we leave. So a lot of the plane tickets are from Salt Lake. They want to go to dinner after. They want to come to a team meeting and talk through like what went through their head during, before, after, around, and share those things and like help each other get better. And they're like really, really excited when someone else does well. Having Josh Larson um, set for us as well as be like a head coach role and hanging out with us during every session is incredibly helpful. He's, um, he's, he's a great coach, you know, that's all there is to it. And, uh, he's been a competitor. He was a competitor for many years, so he knows what, what it takes. And he kind of, he realizes that, uh, sometime training ebbs and flows, uh, and not every day can be the can be your best, but every day can be something that you learn from. And yeah, the training center has been, I think, the most game changing thing for the U.S. as far as international competition uh, in a long time. There's something so special and so incredibly difficult about being able to hold two contrary, seemingly contrary things true at the same time. One is to be sad or disappointed for yourself, and the other is to be happy for someone else. And that's so hard in competition. And I feel like in the last six months, year, we finally have it, like with all of them. And a lot of that is just support coming in the way where it's not just obligations, it's like not binding, it's bonding. John, this is obviously success on the institutional level. Like, there's no denying that. Um, but, you know, they, they said earlier they, they measure it in metal counts. Um, do, do the numbers back that up? The best year for USA Climbing, well, it was actually, it was before USA Climbing even existed. But the best year for an American team was 1992 when they, the Americans won a total for the whole World Cup season of 10 medals. And... Jim Carn won one of those, and the rest were won by Lynn Hill and Robin Herbisfield. That was for the whole 1992 season. This World Cup season, we're only halfway done right now with the World Cup season, and Team USA has already won 15 medals, I think is what the number is right now. So it's, so we've already won, we've already kind of bested our previous ceiling by way more than we could have imagined. Uh, we're sort of in uncharted territory. I don't think that this space would have picked up the momentum that it has if 2020 had gone how we all expected it to. I mean, first, a lot of these athletes moving to Salt Lake would not have been possible. They're in school remotely and they just picked up and came here. And Josh and I were very much of the mindset in an agreement early on in building the program that the more the better. Like, it was very much a come one, come all, and having that momentum was really important to us and we always knew that there would come a time where you know you have to start locking it down you have to become more exclusive and all these things and that and that time has come but i think that we wouldn't be where we are if we hadn't had people move here and had them have a year off of comps to just train comps and have this thing that kept them psyched 
when there were no other you know, deadlines on the calendar and stuff. So not only was it amazing to have the training center through an otherwise kind of sucky year, but I think that an otherwise sucky year gave the training center the opportunity to become what it is now. Like how do you cultivate a great world-class team? Yeah, I think the training center is one piece of that. Uh, it, I think you guys got some exposure to today, right? I think it, it, as crude as that is right now and, and somewhat a little bit embarrassing that you know that's where that's what we have but that's what we have right we have to start somewhere so and you like, didn't have that two years ago no yeah and it's it's pretty good <laughs> i mean it's a pretty nice facility uh, i mean today we probably saw it at its worst just because it's so hot and the doors are open so it's super hot inside the thing is it's pretty nice i mean the, the settings great the facilities it's like everything you would need it's like an incredible home garage yeah it does what it needs to do right now right how do we ensure the athletes have the tools for success we can do some of those things in the current space but yeah even in a bigger uh, you know a bigger facility hopefully down the road really be able to you know build a place that the kids can kind of look towards in the future and say yeah i want to train there with those coaches and those route setters that's the place to be and i'm just going to keep working hard over here in my little youth club until I get there. What's your goal with the training center? Ideally, we'll build a full-scale commercial, full-size, world's best, right? We're USA Climbing. We, should, you know, we don't want to settle for second best. So if we use KI, it's probably one of the best facilities in the world right now, which is Clare Zentrum Innsbruck, uh, where the Austrian team trains. Most would say like that's one of the best facilities in the world. We're kind of using that as the bar and saying, how do we raise the bar? Because one, where our kids deserve it. Two, the vision there, yeah, really is give ourselves an ability. Obviously, that's a bouldering only training center right this minute. Speed wall split in three, not ideal, and no lead to work on. So have all disciplines that can be trained at all times by the best athletes in the country. What does something like that cost? The way we're approaching it right now is, you know, round numbers saying it's a $20 million building. I'm hoping to receive a certain amount of money via local support, whether the city or the state, but then we'll have to fundraise the rest. And some of that I think will be individual donors, wealthy donors that you know have a tie to climbing that could, even if it's a, you know, a million or two million, even, whatever that number is, but just go out and raise it from a variety of, of donors, but then also as kind of a sponsorship side, right? You could name the building or, or you know, it's the North Face you know, National Training Center for the next 20 years at some amount of money. If I can fundraise to get this building built and we have no debt, a small goal, right? We can invest all that money right back in USA Climbing. We can hire more coaches. We can support more teams. We, you know, it, the possibilities are limitless and it's forever. Everyone's got talented pools of athletes. I tend to think we have a massive talented pool of athletes. Uh, you know, so what do we do to get them there? At the end of the day, it is essentially a business, so it's a little bit of a race to see who can do it better. Meg, looking at this year, the gains that U.S. climbing has made, um, how, do you, how do you set your expectations or define success in this new normal moving forward? I am certainly not expecting a medal, but especially after watching the last couple World Cups, honestly, totally possible. It is anybody's game in all three disciplines right now. It's really cool. 
I would go so far as to say that I expect to have one or more finalists. I just wouldn't expect a medal. I think also for us, because the last two years has been a space race for everybody and I feel like we have succeeded in a way we never expected at this space race, like trying to figure out how to qualify athletes, like trying to figure out how much they train, what discipline and all these things for us having all four there and like honestly just feeling like we belong like the u.s has not been competitive in climbing until recently and all of a sudden you expect to work the final at every world cup it's like new and it's still crazy to me that every time we go into an event now like my calendar is cleared i expect to be there till 11 p.m and like waiting out drug tests and whatever which is so different from early 2019. So I think for us, showing up and being in place and queued up like the popular kid at homecoming is success. I feel like we've accomplished a lot of it already. After the break, Alex and John break it down. And we ask, when is the right time to start thinking about the future? Element is a zero-sugar electrolyte drink mix formulated with a science-backed ratio of sodium to potassium to magnesium. Each packet delivers a meaningful dose of electrolytes free of sugar, artificial colors, or other dodgy ingredients. It tastes great, and I've used it extensively on expeditions. Element is formulated for anyone looking to restore health through hydration, and is perfectly suited for athletes, folks who are fasting, or those following keto, low-carb, whole food, or paleo diets. Try Element totally risk-free. If you don't like it, they'll refund your order, no questions asked. So whether you're new or returning Element customer, you can get a free Element sample pack with any drink mix order when you go to drinkelement.com slash climbinggold. That's drinklmnt.com slash climbinggold. Dr. Squatch crafts natural, high-performance personal care products with no harmful ingredients. I don't shower often, but when I do, I use Dr. Squatch. I especially like the Wood Barrel Bourbon Bar Soap. From soap to shampoo to conditioner, they help me look, feel, and smell my best for whatever adventure I choose. They're offering new customers 20% off any purchase with the code CLIMBINGGOLD. Or you can go to drsquatch.com slash honald. Dr. Squatch. Get dirty. Stay clean. Hey guys. Yeah, I'm in, I'm in. <laughs> John at least looks like he's the least prepared for the end of the world. <laughs> like out of us. Are you, are you in a, uh, in a shower bathroom, or a so. bathroom? Nice. Sweet. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's really classy here. But sadly, this is the only <laughs> quiet room in all of France. <laughs> You're probably the cleanest of all three of us, though. yeah i did actually well no i made this mistake last time we were recording where i took a shower ahead of time and then the room was so humid and hot that it was like just almost untenable okay so just to recap usa climbing in two years went from having a one in ten thousand chance of getting a medal this week four americans compete in tokyo mark norman is talking about 20 million dollar training centers that's the two-year recap um i think this is a story that stuck with me uh, ever since I started this project, I heard this story about Sean Bailey from his coach, and he was competing in the European World Cups, and 
he was over in Europe. He was like sleeping in the back of, of the back seat or like the trunk of this tiny European <laughs> rental car. <laughs> he's got like a little Fiat Panda. He's curled up in a ball in the trunk. He's like, thank God I'm not too tall for this. <laughs> yeah, like totally. The bar's not that hard to clear, right? It's like, it, it just was like a, a level of like, a good night's sleep, like, or even thinking about Alex Johnson's stories about DMing gym owners to let them sleep on the floor, or uh, like Alex Puccio uh, was crowdfunding her World Cups um, appearances because her sponsors like weren't interested, and there was just really no support for that in America. And now it does really seem like right now we are witnessing a sporting institution, you know, a machine of sorts that attracts, recruits, identifies, and utilizes talent for for means being built right in front of our eyes. And I'm curious what you think of that. Yeah, I agree that we're building a machine for the sport, but I think it's important to keep the difference in scale compared to mainstream sports uh, in mind. You know, because when you think of something like, like Little League or like Major League Baseball with like the different divisions of ball playing and and like the whole feeder programs and you know, it's like, that's an actual machine, you know, where they try to get people into the sport super young, they play through, I mean, and then it's not just through school sports, but then, you know, the extra leagues and then the freaking, you know, they actually like develop the players and then eventually they make it to major league, you know, possibly after being, going through this crazy winnowing process. I don't know. I mean, there's just so much money in that. You're like, yeah, I mean, developing climbing talent from a young age is, it's like same idea, but just such a different scale. You know, it's like, I don't know. And people aren't paying for their, their college by rock climbing and things like that. You know, it's like, you're not, it's like, I mean, I, I kind of think it's all great to have more of a, a pipeline of talent for climbing because it just allows more people who are interested in the sport to, to, to follow their passion. You know, it's like, I just don't really think we're even close to the point where it's overly commercialized or it's like exploitative in any way. Alex, I'd be curious to hear you th- think on this since you're, you know, you're kind of as deep in the the game as you can be as like a pro climber. But like, I, I mean, maybe this is the first time that the machine, so to speak, has come into competition climbing to this extent, but I think it's always been, or for a long time, it's been a part of, of climbing, you know, more broadly, like outdoor climbing and whatnot. If you want to be a pro climber, there's a machine there, you know, it's not just... Though I wouldn't even call it a machine, I would, I would just call it hoops to jump through. It's more the push lawnmower than the than the well-oiled machine. It's like, I mean, with outdoor climbing, it's like you're totally right that everybody has to find their own path and like the, the correct hoops to jump through in order to, to finance what they're trying to do or to make a living or to save it all. You have to play the game a little bit, <laughs> but it's like a, a pretty friendly and casual game compared to to like the grinding machine of professional sports. You know what I mean? Like this is not the NFL or or NHL or Major League Baseball or whatever. You know, it's not like some big corporate entity that's like chewing out talent and printing money for the owners. You know, it's like climbing is still pretty freaking chill. There does to be like also like a little bit of a bargain of sorts being struck between like climbers who really define the sport in and the sort of the infrastructure around the sport is basically you have these you know, you have USA Climbing and, and the sponsors it brings in saying, you know, hey, we'll take care of you. We'll help you. And you, in turn, you kind of need to follow some rules and, and help us build something. You know, and I think in the context of American Climbing, like rules and sort of following that strict structure, it, it's kind of a funny thing. Well, yeah, actually, another way to look at it is that if you look at climbing as a sport on the spectrum of professional sports, climbers 
have basically no rules. And when you think of other pro sports, like you think of the NFL in, in America and the athletes have a specific weight that they have to check in at, the specific diet they have to eat. They do the, the strength workouts that their coach tells them to. They show up on the day. They get fined if they don't. Like literally their entire life is regulated and they're basically a big, very strong piece of meat that performs when they're told to. And climbing could not be further from that whole world. And so I guess for the sort of newly assembled Team USA, it's like a tiny, tiny step in that direction of, of having set rules and, and standards that they're held accountable to. And, you know, I'm sure it's a bit of an adjustment to, to start, you know, accepting, you know, that, that kind of guidance in your training or like it's just accepting somebody else telling you what to do. I mean, climbing has such strong countercultural roots. I'm sure any kind of team mentality is a, is a bit of a change. And I think the big challenge is this is kind of the I, th I see this as one of the things we have to pinpoint for this whole season is like what is sort of when you get down to it, both outdoor climbing or comp climbing, like what is the soul of climbing? And because that is what would have to be maintained or we that was presumably what we would want to maintain as it does become more part of this like machine. Right. As it does arc more towards other larger, more established uh, more more lucrative sports like you know what could be lost what could be potentially lost there that's interesting because my natural inclination is to be like oh we're so far away from that why even think about it but then on the other hand i suppose that's that's when you should be thinking about those kinds of questions is before things start to change too seriously because i think you're right that we are sort of on the cusp of of climbing taking some steps in a in a different direction a little bit or at least competition climbing sort of growing up and changing it's like you know, is it worth trying to preserve some of whatever the core of the competition climbing experience is right now? But I don't know. I think I think most comp climbers are ready to take a step into the future. You know, it's like they're ready for for bigger contracts and like nicer rooms and like better management and and all. You know, it's like I'm pretty sure that that most competition climbers would you know welcome a higher degree of professionalism in their sport. Right. And, and like you said, like, we're not talking about putting them in five star hotels. We're just going from, hey, you don't have to sleep in your trunk anymore. Like we <laughs> put you in a hotel. Right. So there's definitely gains that can be made um, without sacrifices at this point. Thanks to the crew at USA Climbing for letting us visit in the midst of a crazy moment in time. Climbing Gold is a production of Duct Tape and Beer. Alex Honnold is our host. This episode was written and edited by Elizabeth Nakano and me, Fitzcahal. John Bergman is our producer. Additional editing and mixing by Cordelia Zars. Music today by Brendan O'Connell, Cordelia Zars, and me. That was fun making those songs during the pandemic. Art direction by Anya Miller. Our executive producers are Becca Cahal and Lisey Hendricks for Duct Tape and Beer, and Jonathan Retzik and Ben Indy for RxR Sports. Thanks for listening.